Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the last part of our Band of Brothers cast reunion interviews. Um, Wow. Uh, Today we're going to be talking uh, a little bit more seriously today. We're going to be talking about the responsibility of representing real men on screen, um, especially when you know those real men. So we're going to be talking to the guys about their relationships with the veterans as well. Normandy, you didn't have to go out there to film it, but Woody, our Bogfest coordinator... You know, you all know I make my uh, my bread and butter taking people to battlefields and have done for 20 years. And so it's just that the open question is, what is it like for you guys that you've now had the opportunity, some of you, to return to battlefields? I mean, Robin, you've been to Baston, you've you've been to uh, those places, and, and, and Rick, you have as well. And um, has it changed you? Or did it, has it do you wish you'd done it before? I mean, what, what's it actually like visiting the real places? That's just, that's, that's it. That's my question. Rick Warden, who played Harry Welsh? Well, um, can I answer that a bit? Yeah, um, please do. Um, Paul, you know that I've got, a, I've got a history degree, but um, uh, my speciality wasn't anything to do with the Second World War. It was First World War and modern memory. Um, so I actually during my time at university had trip had a trip over to the western front and so visited um peron um sites of the battle of the somme and passchendaele as well in ypres into belgium so that that experience of battlefields for me i i'd I'd had before um and so, so it wasn't it wasn't necessarily new to me um but I guess the, the the difference is, yeah, I was just thinking about modern memory and, and the show, and I've heard things said on here so far. I think it was Ross who brought up the word detail. I think Michael might have talked about love and the, the kind of care and attention taken to stuff on the show. Um, and it just strikes me that, like, so I'm not really answering your question, am I really? I've just gone off on a ramble. <laughs> Do it. Ramble away. But Rick, listen, Alex is going to be your new best friend because she is a World War One historian. Well, no, but the the, the truth is that the, <laughs> hey, Alex, yeah, uh, the, the truth is that the, if you haven't been to the Western Front, you guys, and I know Paul, I'm sure you'd have done that anyway. Yeah, of course, uh, it, it, it's something else to, to 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 visit those sites. And we studied things like culturally, we studied things like uh, war memorials. So I remember statues at Ypres that, that are designed to weep when it rains. And it strikes me that, that when things are done, because I, I, I did so badly at my degree, actually, uh, history is, as part of my penance has followed me around as an actor quite a lot. Um, but nothing like the way the Band of Brothers history has followed me around. Um, and, and it strikes me that if a show, if a TV show 
puts that much effort and energy and attention to detail into something and money too let's not mm. forget that it can be a little bit like that statue that weeps when it rains it can actually form part of modern memory about war mm. and really i'm getting back to your question now because it's beginning to i'm beginning to grow my brain again um those those visiting of those sites isn't it interesting what's going on at the moment with lockdown I think the First World War used to feel used to feel a long, long way ago to me. When a long time ago, when I studied it, when I was a nineteen-year-old, it sort of feels closer now. And I think the Second World War—that's that's, that's it, even more so. It's really not that long ago. Yes, George Khalil, who played Mo Ali. I mean, it, there's easy answer and very um, hard answers to that question because I, I had never. I'd never seen any of them until uh, you took me, oh, you and uh, and Eric, yeah, between yeah, you. Good two, old Eric, took, yeah. Took us on on a on a on a few very lovely uh, walks and experiences, and and I, I know you you sent me a question about um, this about why why do I come from somewhere far away, and uh, and you know it made me laugh when I read it, Paul, because. Uh, the very first time I came, I paid for it myself. And uh, and the reason that I paid for it was because of, because of, I mean, you see it today, because of, because of all of you, because of all of us, because, because of you, Paul, because of Robin, because of Tim, because of everyone who's on this. Uh, I say them because they were right in front of me, not because <laughs> <laughs> anybody else, Michael, and everyone who's, who's on here. But, you know, I think Michael said it, what a great, great example of uh, you know choosing people and um the the these guys are uh band of brothers changed my life and uh it's because of everyone who is involved not just who, who's here but yeah so seeing those sites uh, i i hated war i really when i went to boot camp and i'm sure you know tim will the guys that were there will remember i i i, I said something very stupid to captain die about you know how come the U.S. Army has the the biggest rate of blue on blue in the world? And I got shouted at and kicked out of the mess, and I ran outside. And, and funny enough, the, the the one English member of the cadre chased me outside. And uh, at the time, you know, I thought I was being clever, and no, I didn't think I was being clever. I just, I just, I just believe I believed what I said. But then, when you see the reality of it, and you see what it what what it really means, and you you at least I came to realize that it's the only, the only just war in, in history. Like, I mean, Rick will correct me, but world war one was fucking Duke's vanities. And, and but it's world one war of those II, ones where you look at it and there's no one is in the wrong. They just can't agree. World war two, there's something no, tangible I, I, yeah, evil that Russell's needs eradicating. Yes, yes, yes. You know, Bertrand Russell was talking about world war one and I was, I was, listening to him on YouTube and I couldn't believe it because they asked him what he would change in history. And this is my, my favorite philosopher. And he, he, he said he would have had the Germans win world war one and not had the Americans get involved uh, or the British. And he said, and they said, why? And he said, because it would have been over quickly and decisively and millions of young men would not have died. And to get, and to, to just to come back to what Paul was saying is that, that it just, Paul, it brings it home, and uh, you bring it home, brother. Uh, 
and mm. and thank you for, for 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 doing this. And just as a postscript to that, um, what I was rambling on about, Paul. What's interesting is when these guys now talk about when we talked earlier with Matt Settle about the four uh, about the foie scene um, and the running through. Now, and Robin, you'll back me up with this, and all the guys who have seen the spaces, now I see the places in my head, obviously. Mm -hmm. I've been there. So yeah. I can see that. I can see that, that corner of the building that's had the, 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 what is that rifle fire against it in foie there. Yeah. 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 And exactly. I can see, you know, uh, I've been to Carantan. Yeah, so Carantan, Dead Corner. I, 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 I know how me and Rick Gomez against the wall and where we pull the pin and run across the rock. I've, I've, <laughs> I've, I've stood Rick, there, man. Yeah, Rick, exactly. I, I had that with, with, uh, with Scotty, with Scotty Gordon two years ago when he came to Normandy, he took, we went and we saw the foxhole where Ali pulled, pulled Scotty out of, uh, out mm. of the foxhole. Well, pulled his, pulled his father, excuse me, but pulled his father out of the Scott, uh, the foxhole. Yeah, it's a bit. It's a bit I mean, in blowing. particular, I think Bois Jacques. The Bois, Bois Jacques. Yes, that's is the one for so me. evocative that you. Yeah. Has ever, the wood, man, man is, or, yeah. Oh, the wood is just. Oh. Peter O'Meara, who played Lieutenant Dyke. It's because of the show that we got to go to Brercourt Manor and get this access to the fields and meet you and get all this incredible kind of information behind the scenes. Uh, I'm just fascinated by it. Like it's, it's really something. And when you stand in that field and you look at the gun positions or sort of try and imagine them, well, you sort of get the vibe. When you get the feeling in Normandy of what it was like, what it must have been like on those days, it's such an important thing, I think, for young people to go and experience. Or, in particular, I say young people because look what's happening in the world. Really, you know, there's a lot of World War II history that's not being taught, and particularly in America, sadly. It, but it needs to be the power of historians and retelling and just putting that in perspective for our younger next group and you know for the, well, for the adults and for the youngers is so important I, i'm i'm grateful for what you guys do and uh i look forward to bringing my kids there and you know making them learn something tim is it right you in particular um really got into the history after being in Band of Brothers. More, more after joining, the, uh, seeing the battlefields. Yeah. yeah. First trip you came, you were you were a rabbit in the headlights, weren't you? Yeah, my first trip to Normandy, which was what two years ago, was um. Uh, I've, I've um, yeah. There was a huge realization that I hadn't had when we shot it. Um, I was more um, interested in other things. I've been acting since I was eleven, so it was another job, really. That sounds really callous, but um, I didn't have a huge role. Oh, I didn't realise the significance of it when I got cast, so I wasn't hugely ignited by the historical significance of it. Uh, that wasn't who I was then. So when I went to Normandy recently, apart from the fact that I hooked up with these guys and remembered what an amazing experience it had been, as if it were yesterday, um, I finally came face to face with, I guess, some of the more visceral sort of elements of what it may have been like for these guys. So yeah, it absolutely brought that alive. Um, and yeah, I had a few little moments when I was there. So let's talk about the responsibility. Um, how do you even begin getting ready? Um, Matt Settle, who played Lieutenant Spears. I guess, I don't know, I absorb the energy of everyone around me. Yes, Peter? That question of did you do right by a veteran, I think haunts all of us. Well, certainly me as well. 
Go on, Philip Barantini, who played Skinny Sisk. It was just an honour to, to play somebody who's been through through that. It felt like an honour that, that we had to sort of, you know, portray these people as, as best we can and, and do them the, the, them justice and what, what, they've, what they've done in the world. Um, so, yeah, just the whole time when we were shooting, we was just had that in the back of your mind that, you know, you've got to do this. You've got to be as respectful as you can and, 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 and do a good job, you know. Yes, Jason O'Mara, um, who played Thomas Meehan, Easy Company commander who tragically was killed before setting foot in France. Um, it's hard because, you know, on, on the one hand, we talk about plot and character. On the other hand, we, we're talking about what really happened in real life. And, and, and what happened to Stick 66 was a tragedy, you know. Hmm. Um, I mean, it was, it was the command stick. And, and it went down in a, in a fireball. And um, it burned because of the amount of Bangalore torpedoes on board, it burned for, for two to three weeks in a field. And, um, you know, when I was, when I was, uh, one of the webbing guys on the show towards the end of my time there said, are you going to that uh, memorial service in Bouzeville plan? And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? He said, well, it's a memorial service next weekend. If you want to go there, they're unveiling a, um, a, a Estelle, they call it a uh, yeah, yeah. plaque, a new plaque. And I said, uh, okay, uh, yeah, I'll check it out. So I got on the boat, brought a friend, and I got on the boat, and I drove to, to Normandy to Bouzeville Plain and um, talked my way into the church, mentioned Band of Brothers, mentioned Steven Spielberg in some pigeon French. And they, uh, once, I, once they understood Steven Spielberg, they let me into the church. And I was able to um, be there for the mass, the ceremony. And then afterwards, we went outside. And um, just before they unveiled the, the, the uh, memorial, I, a squad of paratroopers came marching sort of over the bridge and down the hill towards us. Um, and there was a major with them in their full full dress and uh they brought a bugle as well and they showed up this this squad of paratroopers showed up for this unveiling of the memorial uh with uh, full colors bugle salute um and it was unveiled um and they played taps i think and uh, then they turned around, marched back down the hill and back to their to their bus. It was just amazing. It was just you know, it was a really formal. It was formally done. It was it was classily done. They showed up on time. They did everything they were supposed to do. You know, there's it was it was the right way to honor that particular occasion with the right people. Anyway, afterwards. Um, and, and the memorial's in the shape of the tail of a C-47. Yeah. And afterwards, I, uh, I, asked, um, I was asked by a couple of guys who call themselves the Forced Landing Association, a couple of Belgians. And they said, do you want to come and see the, do you want to come and see the field? Where, oh, you, you I was know, going to ask you, you've, you've actually been to the field then? Yeah. Yeah. So I said, of course I do. <laughs> mm -hmm. You didn't have to ask me twice, you know? So... Um, so we walked down to the fields. It was you know, a quarter of a mile from, from the church. And um, I pointed to this very dark patch 
And they said, that's, that's where it burned for two weeks. Grass still doesn't grow there. And this was, what, this was what, 2000, 2001? 2000, I think it was. 2000 was the monument, yeah. Yeah, grass doesn't, grass doesn't, still doesn't grow here. So um, I was just amazed. And they said, listen, we've spent some time in this field with, you know, uh, metal detectors and such, and we've come across a couple of things. Do you want to see them? I said, sure. And one of the things was a detonated M1 rifle bullet, and he handed it to me, and he said, you may as well have this because, you know, this doesn't belong to anybody, really. It kind of belongs to the U.S. Army, so you may as well have it. It's no use now. It's, it's damaged. And I was like, thank you. So I have that. I've kept it. It's right over there. And um, then they handed me this ring, and uh, on the inside of the ring was etched TM. Yeah. <laughs> which could only really have been Thomas Meehan mm-hmm. that they found deep in, in, in the, uh, in the, in the dirt, in the soil. And, uh, I held it in my hand and that was the moment when I realized that we could talk about character and we could talk about plot and we could talk about dialogue, but this was a real man mm-hmm. who really lived and really died. And the tragedy of that, you know, that he was in his early twenties and he was trusted enough to be made a, uh, the commander of these men, you know. He must have been quite an extraordinary character. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, you're right, he probably would have been able to lead them with a great deal of success for, for quite deep into that campaign. Anyway, I gave the ring back and said thank you. And uh, I asked if there was any way to return the ring to the family. And they said, well, this is... That's what we do. We try to get some of these personal effects that we find from these forced landings, these essentially shot down planes all over Europe, and we try to return them to the families. Um, sometimes it's hard. Some of the men were so young, they don't have a whole load of, you know, they don't have any progeny. Some of them weren't even married. So oftentimes they're looking for, at this point, grandnieces, grandnephews, cousins, you know, to try to return some of these effects to some degree of family and it's not easy but they do a great job those guys it's the just to, to finish that story it's on display in the museum uh it's on display in carrington they've got the ring and they've Mian's dog tag and there's some other bits and pieces because they try well they did contact the family and if i'm remembering correctly the family said it's not that we don't want it it's just that it's it would be better staying in normandy so that other people can see it. And so it's on display there. So, Mark, your character, William Dukeman, dies in Holland, of course, in an incident many of the easy veterans recalled with great sadness. Have you ever had a chance to visit his grave, and how was it? Do you think there was extra responsibility playing one of the men who were killed? Well, uh, after the... I mean, during the show, I obviously didn't get to meet my character because he he died in in Holland. And... um, after the show, I felt a sense of guilt, actually, um, because you get people coming up to you saying what a fantastic job it was and um, what a great show this was. And um, it wasn't me that did these things, you know. It was it was Jupiter that did these things. So for a long time, I, I, I didn't want to go and visit his grave. Um, now, I, I live in Colorado, which is where he's from. I married a girl from Colorado. So I, I, I've been to his hometown, uh, seen where he was born, saw his house where he was born. Um, I've got the tattoo of his service number on my arm, and I'm sort of like a, a junkie now. The day I got killed, 
or my character Dutton got killed. Um, we we shot it only once, and it was it was a, a night shoot, so it was middle of the night, pitch black. Tom Hanks is directing that one, and um, it was just eerie, you know, like nobody nobody spoke to me hardly because they sort of knew that it was coming. And after after we did the shoot, and um, I got my chest exploded, all that kind of stuff, I sort of broke down a little bit, had a cry. Mostly because the paycheck was ending, but <laughs> but no, it was um, it was it was it was it was amazing set to be on because everything was so real, so realistic. Richard Spate, who played Skip Muck, um, was there extra responsibility if your character died? Absolutely, I think there. I think that that responsibility extended not just from the beginning of production, but all the way through everything. There was a. Um, I tell this story a lot because it really requires a perspective that predates the internet. But you couldn't just research things, even though the internet was a thing, it wasn't the thing it is now. You couldn't readily access archives the way you can now. And I remember getting a phone call, production gave me the number of, of a couple of veterans to speak to as reference, and it was Bill Garnier and, and Don Malarkey. My first phone call was to Don Malarkey. Huh. And had a conversation with Don Malarkey and, you know, I'm some dopey actor in Los Angeles who's excited to play a job. And I'm like, I got my notepad and I'm going to ask him questions about my guy. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to really get to know him through this man. And I, we talked about 30 seconds before Don Larkey burst into tears and hung up the phone, which, you know, made me realize, oh, fuck. I just ripped a scab off. I didn't mean to rip. And this is not, I'm not, this is no bullshit. Like, I just stepped in it and I'm going to be in this for a while. And I remember speaking to him again later and just this time with the appropriate attitude and, and being very cautious in my questioning and mentioning, I wanted to find the family. I felt like that I owe, I needed to talk to the family because everybody else was given a wife or a, a brother or not everybody, but the majority of people had some reference, a, a, a child, if their veteran had passed away, but Skip never married, you know, never had kids. They, I just remember saying to Don, I'm like, what part of Florida was Skip from? Because it said in the script, in the movie theater scene, I was in Florida and then I came here. And he's like, he's not from Florida, he's from New York. He's from upstate New York, a city called Tonawanda. And that was sort of the first domino to fall in the journey where I literally looked up all the mucks in the, that I could find in, the, in New York State and was just randomly calling people. And when that didn't work, I sent an email to the Chamber of Commerce for the city of Tonawanda right before we started boot camp, sort of explaining who I was, explaining the project, and, and you know, trying to figure out if I could get any intel from the city. We went to boot camp, came back, and I had an email. That's two weeks later. I had an email from a woman saying, hello, my name is Maureen O'Hara. I mean, sorry, Eileen O'Hara. And my mom got a call from the Chamber of Commerce saying you were asking questions about her brother who died in World War II. You know, what, oh, wow. can I help you? Wow. So we got on a phone, I got on a phone call with her and I said, hey, we're doing a mini series about Band of Brothers and I would like to talk to your mom or you guys about your uncle. And she said, what's, what's Band of Brothers? And I said, we're making a mini series of the book. She goes, what's the book? What are you talking about? And they didn't know, I said, you don't know there's a, that your, your uncle's, War efforts are chronicled in this, you know, revered book. And he said, no, we, last, last we heard was a Western Union telegram in 1945 saying he was wow. dead. That's the, last, that's the last we heard of it. 
So thus began my sort of back and forth with, uh, it was Becky Kronowski and Eileen O'Hara and, and Ruth LaFleur, who is his, his uh, Skip's sister. And we swapped, they ended up sending me color copies of the Western Union Telegram. My walls at the, at the Marshall Street were just pasted with letters, a letter that was never opened because it was returned deceased. They still never opened, but they sent me a copy of the envelope and everything that had the deceased stamp on it. I got all these letters to, to him, from him, was talking to the mom. And one, at one point, the mom wrote me a letter, a detailed letter, just talking about her brother. And it was interesting because I really did rip a scab off there too because they didn't know anything about how he died. They never got his personal effects. And so I said, rather than me tell you the story, go read the book so you can get to know everybody. And they did. And they got to, and, and, but they, nonetheless, it was very emotional for them to read that book and go on that journey. And that I think opened up Ruth to start writing letters. And she wrote me a letter telling me the story about Skip swimming the Niagara River. And she wrote this whole letter about how he, before he went to boot camp, he wanted to swim the Niagara River, so he did, and his girlfriend Faye was all upset. And she sent me this letter, and I took it to David Frankel, who was directing at the time. I said, this is unbelievable. Like, we, we've, we've known nothing about this guy. The only fact I've gotten about this guy was that he wasn't from Florida. He was from Tonawanda, New York. So when we did episode five, I went to Tom Hanks, who was directing, and I said, hey, it says, you know, Muck says I was in Florida, but now I'm here. He's not from Florida. Can I say where he's really from? Like, I don't want to wing it and improv, but he's from Tonawanda. Can I say that? And he's like, yeah, man, do what you want. So, you know, but that's, that's about all the intel I had. And here we got this letter. We got this beautiful letter about swimming the Niagara River. And, this emo and, and what a moment that was for him and his sister before he flew off to, to war. And I showed it to Frankel, and Frankel's like, we're going to aim a camera at a foxhole and you're going to just tell that story. So, you know, Tim and I sat side by side, Gomez sat across from us. It gave us a chance to create a moment between these three dudes so that when story-wise, so when Luz, Gomez was crawling towards our foxhole, you've seen these guys bond because other than that, there was nothing in the script that bonded those guys together. You know, we were bonded in boot camp, but that's not on camera. The, there was no story point that connected these guys and suddenly I had this letter this real story and 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 Frankel was was astute enough to know that it, it mattered in terms of the grand scope of who these three guys are and who Skip is and if we're going to connect them at all other than just a guy in green let's give him some humanity and so I just I just told that story Tim Matthews who played Alex Pancala well, I was just, just, didn't you discover that uh, Muck and Pencala were from, were both from upstate New York, somewhere not yeah, too far? Yeah, that's why you ended, up, you ended up sitting in there, because we didn't know that either, yeah. and so when she sent the letter, she mentioned Pencala, I'm like, oh, well, well, that's why you and I ended up doing it together, because we're like, well, then we should be there reminiscing about this, you know, even though Pencala wasn't there for that event, but he was there, they are connected by their region, mm -hmm. and they can tell Luz's story, and they tell this story, and... We, we, I remember we came, Rick came to the apartment the night before and he's like, oh, I'll, I'll, add the, I'll add the question about the barrel. And we'll like, I'm like, yeah, oh, great. Yeah, we'll make it more conversational. And, and the, the girlfriend's name I mentioned, Faye, was a real person who really was his girlfriend. And so after the series at, uh, aired, 
Faye Tanner watched the series, saw that, and got back in touch with the Muck family and sent them back Skip's original jump wings, which he had mailed her wow. after, uh-huh. after Tacoa. And, and it really set the whole thing on a journey. I, I, had this, I had this moment with HBO that was really, really weird. Because um, your question is a loaded one. I felt a tremendous amount of responsibility playing somebody who had passed during the war. And I didn't necessarily think it got the full support it deserved. You kind of had to fight for the support a little bit. Well, and, and Rich, job of all time, but yes, Jimmy Maddio, who played Frank Picante. Rich, you did. I remember you did, my friend, and and you set that precedent early on because, uh, and you made it clear. And and I remember talking to you about it, and what you did, and what it meant to make sure that Mark was up there in cinematic history. Uh, and you did it, man. You went and you fought for that. It wasn't there. You went and fought for a lot, man. And, uh, and you know, I remember it. And I actually remember all everything that you're saying. Yeah, because, well, that's the other thing is, like, for us, we're telling you guys who are reporting on this, but for us, we lived it in real time. We were all having these conversations all the time. I mean, like, Scott was part of the conversation about changing the name of the city in the movie theater. That was our scene together. And, and Malarkey was our connected veteran. I mean, in a way... <laughs> Scott had Don Larkey, but then I also had Don Larkey, so Scott and I would always talk to Don Larkey. You know, like, everybody had this connected thing. And I remember HBO, and, I, you know, this is one of those things that you say that's maybe not the best thing to say in, in, in the business world, but the fact of the matter is, is that when the premiere happened, people invited, HBO invited the actor and their, veteran, their, their families. And they didn't invite the muck, Family. They didn't sit. The Muck family wasn't included in the invitation. And I wrote HBO. I started an email exchange. I said, "There's there's been an oversight. You need to do this. You know, because they're they're they are representing the man I played." And they sent back saying, "We appreciate that. We understand that that connection. However, we're limiting the tickets to um, families of veterans who are alive." And I said, then you're punishing my soldier for getting killed in the war because (laughs) I asked of them all of the emotional impact and help that you are asking of your, of your people, of everybody else who had a sister or brother or parent or wife involved in this. And they had to get emotionally involved to help that actor deliver that story. I did that to these people Mm -hmm. and I need you to show them the same respect or I'm not coming which was not like me, but I also felt like I felt like HBO was a replacement and they needed to do their 20 fucking pushups because I had done my goddamn job from day one. And I was not going to now be told that I was not wearing a uniform and now it was going to be fancy and we're going to be having cocktails on the beach, That suddenly it wasn't about the war. And I thought that was bullshit. That was a decision being made by people in suits who were not in the fucking mud when we made the show. And I was not going to stop doing my job because it was time to dress fancy. And it's and, and luckily they did the right thing. Yeah. But I, it, it got under yeah. my crawl. As you can tell, it still I, gets under my crawl. <laughs> I'm sure that I remember you introducing me to them on the train, the, the uh, yeah. Mark's family. Yeah. Because I, I, that's why I was like, wow. I, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I remember them, them being there. Yeah, they were there. Yeah, Mm-hmm. They got to, they got flown over there because they were the girls they were the women I dealt with the most yeah uh, yeah Eileen and they flew over 
They were in and Paris, they were right? Awesome. And they, and they, you know, they yeah. got to bond to their. They'd never met anybody. All these, all their, you know, Garnier and Malarkey, and they finally got to be a part of. You know, they were as much a part of that experience as anybody else because they they sacrificed a loved one for the greater good of the of the war effort, and they deserve yeah. to be a part of the honoring of that that we were spearheading as the performers in Band of Brothers and as the production team behind Band of Brothers, you know? Rich, tell us about after the series for Mark's family. The the series begat some good stuff for them in terms of honoring Muck uh, in, they, they because he lost all his medals, they were able to uh, lobby the chamber, the chamber of Commerce and their local and federal government representatives to get all of his medals reissued, which was great because that stuff never made it back to the family. And then the city of Tonawanda, with some help from some, you know, benefactors, uh, built a monument to really all veterans of all wars um, with a specific focus on uh, Skip Muck and Fritz Nyland. And for this goes back a while, guys, but Fritz Nyland um, was mentioned in the book Band of Brothers when Muck goes to London and they all hang out with some guys in another company. Then Fritz Nyland is the Ryan of Saving Private Ryan. It was the five Nyland brothers were the the brothers on which uh, Private Ryan was based and Fritz was the one that got pulled out. And this is an interesting, I always think this is a fascinating little piece of like cinematic trivia is that the Nyland brothers were also from Tonawanda, New York. And Fritz and Skip were great friends. And when Skip Muck swam the Niagara River, and I did not know this when we shot the series, talking to your point, Paul, about things you learn later. But Fritz and Island, so that, you know, if the current is too strong and you can't make it across, you die because you go over the falls. So when Skip swam the Niagara River, Fritz and Island paddled alongside him on a boat in a boat to be sure that if he got too tired, he could cling to the boat. So you have Skip Muck who ended up being portrayed in Band of Brothers and, and Fritz Nyland who ended up being immortalized in Private Ryan on the same, sharing the same moment in the same river right before the war started. And wow. so they built a memorial on the bank of the river where they wow. shoved to make that journey. And so it's a specific tribute. I actually spoke at the dedication of that ceremony. That's going back a couple years now, but uh, yeah, it's been nice to have, it's been nice to have everything that family went through to help me uh, pay, you know, return to them in goodwill from their community and from the representatives. So it's been, it's been pretty great. Awesome. Beautiful. Matthew Leach, who played Floyd Talbot, um, at the other end of the scale, you struggled with the responsibility since, um, and then and since, I think it's fair to say. Dick Winters said that if he could take one soldier into combat, it would be Floyd Talbot. And then there's a ten-part, ten-hour-long series where you don't see that. Um, <laughs> and uh, because I feature in in certain episodes, um, but you don't really see why Dick Winters said that. Uh, as far as <clears throat> Uh, like you said, uh, like a breakout manner or something, where you see he was tactical genius or anything like that. And uh, the reason for that is several fold. Firstly, um, Tab died in 1982, and so he wasn't available to be interviewed. I was given quite 
a scant amount of literature as far as he was concerned. And so I guess the writers didn't have a great deal to work on in that respect. So that's one reason. But the real reason is that it's my fault. And that's because if you work in an office, if you run an office, say, and there are certain people that are doing a lot of hard work, uh, you're liable to promote them. Uh, and if there is a person who likes to sit next to the photocopier, eyeing up the receptionist and trying to get laid, you uh, don't promote them. And uh, there was definitely, in the first couple of episodes, people being felt out as to, you know, what the story was going to be, who you kind of follow, and there were definitely certain actors who put themselves forward more, um, had more interaction with their veterans, the veterans' families, got those stories together, took them to the writers, took them to the producers, and, uh, and, and helped flesh out and create more stories. Uh, for their characters, putting the characters forward. And that's not being particularly political or sharp-elbowed, it's just being smart and doing your job. And um, to my lasting regret, I feel like I didn't do that a lot at all, really, when I think back about it. I just... I, I'd come from doing a show where I was more the main character and they just gave me a whole bunch of stuff to say and I'd say it. And I'd never really worked on something like this, the size of this before, and had to sort of do a lot of research on a character and, and find out about them and bring it to the writers. And so, in certain respects, I kind of almost coasted through it. I did what they told me to do. Um, I think they liked what I did, and in certain cases they gave me more to do. But as far as actually bringing more to the story that the writers didn't know, which would only have happened through research and Tab's two brothers were alive so I did have that resource Honest Indian I just kind of didn't do it <laughs> uh, that's a terrible thing to say I, I don't know whether it was just stupidity or naivety or I mean a lot of the guys in the show were, were, were had been actors since they were kids and I wasn't one of them I mean I would only really just come out of drama school and done like a kid's show so, uh, when I look back, I'm not quite sure whether I can say I was super lazy, or just super naive, or maybe a bit of both. But it would be ingenuine of me to just say it wasn't... It was just because there wasn't literature, wasn't there. Um, I should have worked harder. And I don't know whether it was just my own kind of shyness to be able to, like go to producers and writers and say, look, 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 I've got this, but uh, I just, honest, kind of didn't do it. Yeah, it's something that I look back on with great regret. I feel like the stuff that I was given to do, I did well, but I could have brought more to it as far as doing the shovel work myself as an actor. So, that's me probably admitting that for the first time. Russ McCall, who played Liebgott, do you want to respond to that? There's a double that? point here, in, in a sense, because I see what Matt is saying. There, there was, you have to look at it, there were a few things that were happening too. There was, 
look, I didn't have a veteran. I had nobody to talk to about Liga. Mm-hmm. Nobody. Sorry. I had no family members. I had one piece of paper with a picture on it. That was it. So the only times that I could actually get any information was to speak to the veterans who were still alive, who always talk about their brother and they don't talk about themselves. But there were also, you know, a lot of the, the scripts were coming out and the stories were coming out and people were going and talking to directors and talking to writers and sort of going, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? Yeah. And I did think that there needed to be a healthy balance, which I think the producers found in saying, look, it's still, of course, we would love to give everybody every story. There are people mentioned in the book that are not in the series. There are people who have big mentions in the book that are hardly in the series. Yes, Rick Warden. To an extent, any series has to be emblematic on yeah, some sort of absolutely. level. And, and, you know, I could t- I knew that I knew Harry's story coming out of the plane was an extraordinary story, mm. and it's not in there. Yeah, he was saved by the updraft of an exploding plane underneath him, saved his life, and blew him high yeah. enough to land safely. You know, these details are extraordinary, and those stories are out there, but they can't all make the show. Go on, Scott Grimes. You played Don Malarkey. Uh, Matthew was a was an excellent dude and a great yeah, actor. Great, he's a great soldier, man. Yeah, he's not one person. There is one person, but he's not here right now, and I don't even hardly remember his name. Uh, there was a, you know, I had I got in a fight with someone on a truck once because he wouldn't take put his helmet on. Whatever. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about? <laughs> Matthew, <laughs> Matthew was fucking always there, always making us laugh, always doing his job. He was excellent. So if that helps him at all, man, I have nothing but fond memories of him. Tim, go ahead. In defence, I guess of the, uh, you know, the fact that we were young, uh, young actors who got a role. I mean, this is going to sound a bit crass. But I think it's important. I didn't sign something that said, you know, I'm going to represent to the best of my ability and fight for to the best of my ability this person that actually I had no information about. I didn't have a very big role, so it's it's perhaps a bit different. Um, but I think I think sometimes there's a, a little bit of romanticising about perhaps what we all thought we were getting ourselves into versus what we got ourselves into. I mean, certainly I didn't fucking expect this, uh, right. You know, we're still doing this now. It's amazing. I love it. I love it way more now than I did at the time. I didn't know what I was doing. I was 23. Like Matthew, I'd been doing quite a lot of TV. I'd been working since I was 11 years old, I think. So it wasn't my first role and it wasn't a very big one. I was a bit disappointed if I'm honest. Um, you know, it was from an actor's point of view, didn't have much to work with didn't really have any info, kind of got my head down and got on with it. Uh, could I have done more? Absolutely. But there were a whole team of writers, producers and directors and, you know, everybody else who had uh, opportunities to do that as well, way before we were cast. I understand there were opportunities as things unfolded. Information comes up and that's amazing. Wonderful that people were able to do things with it. But I think, yeah, I just wanted to say something, I guess, in defence of the young ignoramuses that some yeah, of us definitely I, I also were. think that you shouldn't, we, none of us should underestimate what we did contribute or whatever level it was on, you know, because we are all here now talking yeah. about it. But it, it's true. And and those guys, the veterans, you know, even Johnny Martin, I'm sure there's complete anachronisms in, in terms of what was portrayed there. I, as an actor, as you all know, we all took our moment to go, all right, I can get, I'll get my helmet off here and I'll stand up front and I'll, whatever, you know, those natural actor instincts or whatever it is because you represent them in the way that you represent them. It's just that ultimately they're there and they are this band of brothers. It sounds a corny right. thing to say. And I add on to what Dex is saying there. It's something that Jimmy and I have talked about in the past couple of years when we've been, you know, back in Europe, um, you know, following the, the Easy Company steps and stuff. 
and we've had a chance to rewatch the show. And I'm probably the same as everyone. I hadn't watched the show in 15, 16 years. I mean, I, I haven't watched it in a long, long time. And we were f- not forced, but we certainly had time to sit down and watch this show. And, and you could sort of now detach from it and watch it as an audience member, as a professional in our profession, and no longer as the actor that was trying to see when they were on screen and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And the thing that Jim and I have both been really passionate about and this sort of goes to what you're saying here, Tim, and what you were saying, Dex. Every single person, every single person pops. And it's incredible. You watch the show and every single person, it doesn't matter if they have a small piece. It doesn't matter if you have a great one episode. It doesn't matter if you're yeah. spread out. Every single person pops in that show in yeah. such an incredible way. It's yeah. really, it's, it's fascinating to watch. Jimmy? Yeah, there's not many yeah. false moments, if any, in that entire series. It, it's, yeah. I don't know if you guys have watched it in a while, but it, it is really fucking good. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Go on, Rich. Well, I got to say, in, it, uh, to, just to piggyback on what you said, Tim, I think it's easy for us to sit here and romanticize even what I was saying. The question I was asked, like, yeah, I fought for and we got this scene. It seems easy to say in hindsight, but... I don't, I don't, I, I sometimes think that my choices were questionable. And, you know, I was very close to you, Scott, and, and Jim during that whole time. And there's a lot of things that were really fucked because I became mono-focused in a way. So, Tim, if, if Matthew's concern is that he, he erred on one side of the line, I might have erred too far on the other. Mm-hmm. I became, like, almost obsessed. It was my only, like, like not from England. <laughs> I didn't have any family around me. I wasn't a married dude. I didn't have kids. I was like, my, I almost became hyper obsessed with this idea of doing the right thing, which is an unachievable goal because as to, to Rick Warden's point, tons of stuff, not going to make the move. Like it's, it's a movie. It's not, it's mm-hmm. not a, a, a moment by moment reenactment of the entire experience. Uh, yeah, it's a bit heavy, but honestly, I fucked up Band of Brothers and it's the biggest regret I ever had in my life, really, because, you know, when the guys were talking about that, you were talking to Alina or, 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 or you were, Alex, about the last scene where you can't watch it. Yep. I filmed that last scene. Yeah. And they didn't put it in Band of Brothers. And I felt, I still feel, uh, uh, I'm going to make light of it because I'll probably cry if I don't. I, I still feel fucking awful for uh for for jim's family who are friends of mine and uh you know i didn't make that i didn't make the cut it was your first time after birmingham rep being on camera on camera and you you god bless you matthew settle you told me not to look at you in a scene and i asked you why and you said come over to westminster do you remember and i came to your flat and what did I say? You told me how to act on screen. <laughs> oh, I did? <laughs> I, I fucking know. I made that shit up. <laughs> but it made him feel better. That's what he's saying. Yeah, no, I, I, did, try, I did try to give you confidence. Because, you know, as, a, as a, the youngest in my family, I had to fight for, you know, every inch of, you know, everything I got, right? Um, and, it, and, and normally you get spoiled, but I was number six and I don't know, it was just a numbers thing. So I, I learned early on to, uh, if, if you could be a champion for people who were scared, it helped you get over your own fear. 
Mm. No, that was my that was my way of dealing with my own fear. You know? No, and when I was young, man, when you did it, I was like, who the fuck does Matthew Settle think he is? Tell me to come up to his flat. And 20 years later, you remember, man, you think, what a lovely man. It shows something about the pressure you guys felt about yeah. representing, doesn't it? Michael Kudlitz, you had an even bigger discovery um, than Rich's, didn't you? Talk to us about what it was like meeting the real Randleman. Um, wow. Well, meeting the Randleman's was interesting because uh, I think we were given um, information, contact information for those of us um, that had our vet. Uh, people were alive that still knew them or could tell mm -hmm. stories of them or they knew that they were friends. And uh, I remember talking to uh, Hashi, uh, uh, calling him up because he was one of the replacements and they were you know, like, he's the best that we could find for you to talk to. Cause obviously uh, Denver's passed away and we can't find any of his family. So you can talk to Hashi. So I'm talking to Hashi for about 40 minutes. And at one point he says, well, we should probably just call him up and double check this. And I'm <laughs> like, uh, I, I would love to, but I, I think he's, I think he's passed. And he said, Oh shit. When, like, when did he pass? I just talked to him a week ago. What the fuck? <laughs> I'm like, Whoa, 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 whoa. No. Okay. Okay. Hang on. Hang on. No, I got this information. They've been looking for him. They have not been able to contact him at all. So if you talked to him a week ago or a week and a half ago, like, like, hang on, he's probably still alive and they don't have the right information on their end. That is incredible. So, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So I went and I said, I'll get back to you. So I, I called up the production office and I, I said, uh, talk to Jennifer. And I said, I, uh, I, I think I got information that he's still alive. So here's, here's what I did. You know, you, you guys can call Ashley back and check with him what number he has and this and that. So about four days later, I get contact and they're like, yeah, actually, uh, he's alive. And uh, he's in Texarkana and uh, we have his number and he'd be more than willing to talk to you. Oh, um, so it's like, okay. So I know everybody's gone through this. If you've talked to any, either, even adjacent to their vet. Um, I mean, 
I look back at it now, and I don't, I don't know if it would if it would be any different. But I'm sitting there remembering looking at my phone, and it was probably the hardest phone call I've ever made. Mm. Because you sort of think, oh, okay, cool, I'm going to ask all these questions. But then when you when you go to make the phone call, you sort of go, how the fuck do I even start? <laughs> like, what is it? What is it? Hey, I'm the the actor that's going to be playing you. How's it going? Which is pretty much how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> we got nothing back in return. He's like, hey, how you doing? So I'm like, um, so I was wondering if you could uh, answer some questions. And he's like, yep. <laughs> I'm like, uh, you know, and you're going through your mind. And you're sort of like, what do you even ask? Hey, how was the war? Like, like where, do you, where do you even begin with that? Like, tell me about your life. So. It was a very interesting process early on. I got very, very little out of uh, Denver at first. Um, but like with many of the guys and their families and their family friends, um, he put his wife back on the phone afterwards, Vera. And I spoke to Vera for about two hours. Now, in retrospect, that's probably a better person to talk to than him about this because we are... We are all, all of us in this video, everybody walking through life, we, we know who we hope the world perceives us as, mm. but the people who see you and actually love you and spend time with you, they know how you really are and how you really present to the world. I mean, you may think you're not a selfish person, but if everybody around you says you're a fucking selfish bastard, guess what? <laughs> <laughs> You're a selfish bastard. It always used to be, like, we would talk about that with a lot of the vets too. Whenever you try to get information about your vet, going to your vet was probably the last person you'd go to the other yeah. guy. The other guys, because yeah. they're all, you know, exactly. Talk about the brother. Exactly. And they're all like, oh, no, it was no big deal. And you're like, are mm -hmm. you kidding? That guy was fucking over the wall. He was in there. And he's, and if you talk to your guy, he's like, nah, it wasn't a big yeah, deal. let's talk about him. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So there was a, there's a lot of that, but that is, uh, that's, I would say that's pretty much the constant and the, and the one sort of through line with all these is that they, they, the conversations with the families did start out very um, innocuous, very passive, very mm. talking about things that didn't really matter. And the more that the trust was gained um, and they had sent some people to set and some people were reporting back and they were getting more and more info. And the more and more they realized that the story was being told properly, the more, the vets opened up to us, yeah. the more they opened up to their families, even during this process. Um, and we, we were ultimately sort of absorbed uh, into their families. Uh, and it must have been weird for them as well, though, like to have this yeah. kid in front of you saying, so I'm going to be you. Uh, how yeah. do you even process that? That's yeah. They I must have been weird as shit for them. <laughs> I, I, it would have been. I look back and I'm thinking I wouldn't have told me anything. Yeah. Just, I mean, that's a, you talk about a trust exercise. You know, they they were already leery of the book initially when you know when uh, Ambrose was doing the interviews that that was the sort of the same process. The more mm. that they opened up to him and the more that he talked and they talked to each other, the more they wanted to talk to him. Um, and then ultimately, I I do believe there are some vets out there who wish they had talked to him who chose not to. Because they saw how, how the story was done with so much love and care, um, which wasn't a given. You know, ultimately, when you really look back, it, it, it could have, had it not been done by, you know, in the hands of Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, uh, and us, 
sports, you know, and everyone who played the, the, the background, our, our special ability background, uh, men and women who, who put so much into every scene and made us able to do the work we were able to do. Because honestly, so many of those scenes revolve around everything in the background working. And, and, you know, we've all seen it where you look and you're like, what the hell is that guy doing in the back? And that's the last thing you want. Everybody who was there was there to tell the story the best it could be told, the, the most accurately it could be told, and with the most love and care it could be told. We had the best of the best in every for the show because everybody knew the story that was to tell and everybody was uh, humbled enough to, to, to be a part of it. You know, yeah. showed up and brought their again. That as yeah. a kid and, watching and it, I know that for me, I, I'll level with you. I've rewatched that series, I can't tell you how many times, nine and a half episodes, because I've only ever once watched a bit where they start telling you the names under the old guys and they start telling you who's who um, and the baseball game. I can't do it. I did it once. It destroyed me for days and I've never <laughs> done it again since, no matter how much I love the show. Let's talk more about the veterans. Philip, you couldn't talk to Sisk, could you? Well, my character, Wayne Skinny Sisk, unfortunately passed away um, the year before we started shooting. Um, so I didn't get a chance to, to speak to him. Uh, and and, a, and a, a lot of the guys, no one had really been in touch with him anyway. When the war ended, he turned to drink a little bit. And then he, and then he became a, a, a pastor and, and, um, and turned to God. But, but I didn't get a chance to speak to any of his family. I'm not sure whether any of his family wanted to be involved in the, in the project. So I didn't really get a chance to see any of those but everybody that came on set we had we had uh, Bill Garnier and uh, Babe and, and a bunch of the other the, the, the veterans came on set one for, for like a week or so, or so and, and they were just telling me stories about Skinny. Ben you were one of the cast who didn't get to meet the man you played but you did get to befriend his family including his son Scotty what was it like visiting the actual foxhole where Smokey was wounded with his son? Yeah I mean very very emotional to, to to go there I mean it was a very it was one of those things I wanted to do um obviously I've been to France and um been to Normandy and been to Carantan and and um uh, you know visited quite a lot of the sites uh previously but when the offer or the opportunity came up to go to Bastogne I jumped at the opportunity and uh it was one of those places that I'd always wanted to visit and uh, to, to, to actually go there and have the tour I mean the, the, the you know the, the woods themselves are, are very eerie and it's a very eerie sort of feeling when you go there as if something, you know, clearly, I mean, obviously something very dramatic did happen there, but it, it's almost like the, the woods are almost kind of whispering with, with the amount of history and um, the, the, the amount of, of, of experiences that have taken place. Um, but to actually go around and be able to see the foxhole was, was extraordinary. And obviously Scotty was there. Um, and, um, you know, we had some pictures taken, but you also had some moments to just reflect and, and, and to think about his dad. And, um, you know, I formed a great bond with Scott and, um, and, and one of the greatest experiences on set for me was, was obviously meeting Betty, his, um, his, his wife and, uh, and Scott's, Scott's sisters, they all came to set. And that was a very special moment to meet them in the first place. Um, when they first came on set, I was in the middle of shooting a scene and then I think they were sort of just hanging back and then somebody came in and said, Ben, I've got people that would love to meet you. And it, and it was a really special moment to meet the family. And, um, you know, again, it, it sort of it, it sort of upped the stakes, as it were, because you suddenly, you know, it became very real that you are telling somebody's real story and there's, there's a family that 
whose legacy you are you are carrying and um the responsibility was was huge but they were very very supportive it was lovely to meet them it was lovely to be able to spend some time talking to them and share you know hear their memories and and, and uh, you know almost inhale some of that information from from the people that knew him and as i say i've seen scott at quite a few different events and we've become very good friends and um when i was in la last year and the year before i've met i've met uh, i met his um uh, I bet Walter's granddaughter who lives in LA and we've hung out a bit and uh, again it's just been it's been really special and whenever I've, I've met up with her you know she introduces me to all her friends she works at the Magic Castle in LA and she always introduces me as this is Ben and he played my grandfather in that series Band of Brother and it's almost like that Tom Hanks speech that um, yeah. <laughs> at the beginning of boot camp you know there's there that what, a, what an amazing story to be able to sort of hang out with 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 his family and to, to form that very special bond that we'll have forever and they're always very um very complimentary about um about my portrayal and, and as i say i just hope i did it justice rick gomez um you two couldn't talk to your vet but again you had a relationship with his family didn't you what's it like um playing someone when you actually know their family uh, oh boy. Um, it's, uh, I mean, I, look, I think all of us went through a, a bit of, all, of this. You, you, you feel like you have a responsibility, an incredible responsibility to get everything right. That's sort of, we've said that a, a, a million times and we can say it a million times more and be, um, be sincere about it every single time we say it because there, there's no, uh, it, it's, it, the weight of that was, was felt in every uh, conversation we had with each other and every frame we shot. I know it's certainly, Anybody who was in anything with me, we always, we, there was a weight. There was a weight even if you were, and honestly, the whole like clown the company thing was sort of a, it's an odd thing because I never even thought about that. Like I never thought like, hey man, so now I got to come with a joke because I'm the comic relief at the moment. Um, I just felt like shit was said when shit was said and people did what they did in those moments and those who were those, those were the people that they were. Those, those, those were those characters. And, um, and ultimately, I feel like every one of us in the nine, ten months that we shot, uh, or eight or, eight or nine, if boot camp is a month or whatever, everybody arced as human beings. Everybody I know arced. Mike arced, Renee arced, Ross arced. We all, we all became different people by shooting it. And because they cast so full human beings, that was all there. And that's the truth of what you'd go through in, 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 in going through what the men went through. So, so that, was, that, was, that was just the experience of living through something. Honestly, we all changed. Um, as far as the family, I just, I just always wanted them to, to, to be proud. And, um, and, and uh, uh, Delphina, Del Luz, George's, George's wife, before she passed away, we got to go to Normandy and ride the train together. And she held my hand for an hour and a half. And I mean, squeezed it. And she rubbed my arm. And, and, um, and I know, I, know I, 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 I knew I got it right. It was, good, it was good enough for her. And so then any, any bullshit that kind of was in my head about like, oh, you could do more, you could do this, or why is that? Blah, 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 it just kind of all disappeared in the, in the glow of, of her smile and, and her um, appreciation of it. And so, I mean, man. That's, that's all you can do. And, and I lo love that family. And anytime I get to see George, I see George the most because when we do, we do something, we get together. I saw him a couple years back, right, Ross? When was Cleveland? A couple years back? A year and a half, yeah. year and a half, yeah. 
so so I get to see them, and it's great to to have a beer and catch up and and do all that. So so th- that's always that's always a, a, a fun thing to be able to do. But um, but yeah, man, it's a it's family forever. Well, all, not only just us, but the families we brought into that circle. It's a beautiful thing. When did that start to dawn on you that that's what that you were going to get that out of it as well as a paycheck? Like when I first talked to Dell before mm. the whole thing started, um, and we were on the phone for about three and a half hours, I realized, okay. This is legit because she. I, I just started writing notes, and she was it, was. it was cathartic for her to go through it. Yeah. And then I realized, like, oh, I know, I know everything about this guy from a wife's perspective, and um, it's an interesting perspective. But it wasn't about the paycheck either. <laughs> no, it wasn't about the paycheck ever. No. Um, because, ever. No, no, it never wait, was. Wait, I, I we got a. We got a. We got a paycheck. Did we get a paycheck? <laughs> <laughs> you guys got paid. Peter Youngblood, Hill to Pledge Shifty Powers. Tell us a little bit about the special relationship you forged with Shifty and what playing him has meant to you. Uh, well, I, I guess uh, I met Shifty before we started filming and he happened to live about an hour away from my mom uh, in Clinchco, Virginia. And so he it was kind of easy for me to access him, access him. And his daughter, Margot was very helpful with that. And at the time I didn't know how to drive. And so, uh, she, she, she drove me up there and we basically spent the time I spent, you know, a couple of days with him. And, you know, that kind of started, he was such a beautiful, beautiful person and really, uh, welcoming and, uh, very thoughtful, and uh, obviously I was a na- naive, kind of stupid kid in many regards, and didn't really know what was going on, and it was kind of, you know, just trying to help me as best as you could, and I think now I look back on it, and I look back on the the moments that we shared, and it's like really, you know, you just feel so deeply for those those times that we shared those that the relationship that we had and i i I suppose that would go for you know a lot of the older generation you know that we've you know that we the the elders and they've been through things and been through so much of you know of where we've what you know where we've come from ultimately and we're just kind of i think with shifty was there was a way that he understood a through, there was a through line of uh, wisdom that he under, he kind of understood about, uh, you know, where he had come from and where, where he was going and, and, uh, and always so loving and, and, and humble in how he related to, to everybody else, you know, and it was kind of, we went on the USO tour where we, you know, later on we went to Japan and, um, and to Hawaii with one Lum McClung. And I think it was, uh, Buck Compton and, uh, Don Malarkey and it was Jimmy Matteo. And we basically, we, you know, had a good time just, you know, learning about each other and, uh, in the context of, you know, the, the, the you know the 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 world as as it was then 
and and they're just their 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 love for you know what these men were going through these soldiers were going through what they faced and uh you know it it just it reminded me i guess you know, probably the thing that shifty used to he used to sit in his porch and he used to sit on his porch in in his holler in Clinchco. He's been there for all his life. And he would just, he would drink a cocktail and he'd smoke a cigarette and look out into the woods. And that was his piece. And that was just what he did. And he would do that every night. And I, it was, that's kind of, you know, you'd remember remember the good times and remember each other and and that kind of it's it's grown within me i don't know if it's it's almost like you know it's taken time for me to mature enough to understand what you know what these guys were actually dealing with what they were longing for what they what they loved and and it's you know i'm kind of understanding a little bit more about that these days and and i think about that think about him at that on his porch looking out at his holler and just kind of you know, just pondering you know pondering what home is you getting old pete <laughs> yeah yeah for me i was always absolutely heartbroken um by spears's backstory didn't he get home from the war and his wife had gone hadn't she he that's what they that. told me yeah they did, they he did me, all yeah. that in world war ii and he got home and there was no one waiting for him yeah i always wondered about that why he was looting so much but uh, you know there's, there's nothing was it charles bukowski said there's nothing like a woman that can bring it all out of you right so i mean <laughs> well, so he's he's over there in zalemsey and everywhere looting like the dickens to try to keep a, a relationship then he gets home to to the uk and he finds out that the wife that he's been storing up all these treasures for her husband comes back to life that's the memory i have mm. of his backstory so his husband was in a uh, uh some prison camp over in russia um to my memory does that sound right to everybody else it's uh if i may jump in here what happened is, is is ron spears got married to an english girl and her husband had been missing for i think three or four years out in the far mm. east in singapore and they married they had a kid and then the husband turned up and under English law, the only way they could rectify this was to annul the marriage. Spears loses his wife, but the kid he'd had had to be raised by the, the, the actual previous husband. Tim, go ahead. Uh, wow, Jesus, that's, uh, that's unimaginable, really. Not the kind of thing you expect uh, to have to come home to, you know, when you've just been through all of that. I, I can't imagine. What, what a bittersweet set of circumstances for everyone, though. Like, you know, the guy's still alive. Great. Uh, you know, her her husband. But, yeah. I, I mean, it's an impossible situation, isn't it? Mark Lawrence, who played Dukeman, you couldn't talk to him, obviously. And that hurt, didn't it? Because I never got the chance to meet him, you know, and I, I was quite jealous of a lot of the other guys because they, they got to hang out with their men. You know, go drinking all that stuff with him and hear all the stories. And um, I was talking to Babe Heffron one day. He came on set and um, he said to me, which character are you playing? I said, Dukeman. And he just started to break down in tears and just gave me a big hug, you know. And it was like, 
I just wish I could have met him. You know, I really do. I really do. Um, were they able to tell you much, the veterans that you did meet? Well, they, they said um, they said he was a good-looking guy, um, and he smoked and drank a lot. So it's it's pretty much me down to a T. So <laughs> I got lucky. But no, they 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 all said they liked him, and I mean, this they were kids, you know. And it's like so when I met Heffron and Garnier and all that, they were they were older men. They were all like 60s, 70s, and they were remembering a guy that was 21, 22. Who, who obviously never got old. So, um, yeah, they just they had good things to say about him. You've made a pilgrimage, sort of in the same vein as Jason, haven't you? Going to the place where Jutland came from, it's a tiny, tiny-ass town. It's about 500 people in it. And I went into the American Legion, and they've got all the American flags up on the wall of people that died. And there must have been about 100 flags on the wall, you know? And from a town that tiny to give up that many men, is insane and that happened all across america you know i mean obviously the uk as well i mean i'm not i'm not the uk gave up so much but but just to just to see that these young lads from like bfe middle of nowhere came over there gave their lives and never went back i mean walking into that room seeing all those flags from that tiny town i, I just broke down you know it's just my god it is it's, it's real so I, I i feel that every chance that i get to one of these men, I'll take it any time, you know. Rick Warden, do you have anything to add? And the truth is that Harry, Harry didn't die in the war, but Harry had died in the 90s. So I, the connections I had with Harry, I didn't have any connections with his family when I made the series. And I did after the series. But during, Babe Heffron, the real Babe Heffron, and while Bill Garnier visited set during episode three, and that was, as Dexter said, shot early on. And they literally made a beeline for me during, I think, one of the Karen's hand scenes and just told me who I was playing. <laughs> just by looking at me and by what I was doing. And, and honestly, I, I, not as an actor, it's not I didn't feel I push it. I just felt, you know what, if it's good enough for them, then I'm all right. <laughs> Jimmy, we've been talking to people about um, their veterans and the relationships they forged. And I know that you forged a really special relationship with um, Frank Picante. What did that mean to you? Well, I, I, uh, for, for me, I think it put a lot of pressure to make sure that, you know, I, I get it right. And I think that goes for all of us. Uh, it was great to, to just get information about him and, and as accurate as we can be and, and, and putting him on the screen and, uh, for his family and his friends and all that. And at the same time, I know it was crucial to get information from him for the other guys. Some of the other guys that Frank was, Frank was close with like a Luz or, you know, Lipton or anybody and just kind of go, Hey, here's what Frank told me about, you know, one time with the, you know, one of the other characters. So just having a relationship with him for that during filming was, was great. But later on in, in life, uh, in, in our relationship, you know, I went out to Chicago maybe two or three times a year. I went out almost every year for his birthday and got really close to him. I got to, you know, tour Europe with him and go back to, uh, we did Normandy, Holland. Uh, uh, we went into the Ardennes at Ballad of Bo uh, Bastogne and looked at the foxholes, you know, retraced exactly where he was shot and foy, you know, right through his groin and came out of his ass. Uh, so I got really, really close with him and uh, went to visit him right before he passed. 
but it meant a lot. It, you know, I say that, you know, I say it all the time. When you first took this job, you knew it was going to open up a lot of doors as far as, uh, you know, for careers, you know, mm-hmm. it, uh, it's such a monumental epic piece, but I didn't, I, you know, I didn't know that I was going to gain a friend like that and, and, and just become, you know, uh, uh, great buddies with someone and, uh, help shape kind of who I was and who I am moving forward, but a good guy. What happened was uh, Frank was, you know, he was, he was going to pass. And tell us what happened, Jimmy, when Frank was dying, because um, you absolutely wanted to see him one last time, didn't you? And I was in touch with his family and uh, uh, I called HBO. You're talking, this is 14 years later after the series, you know, Frank was like 96, 97. This is 2014, I believe. Uh, and I called HBO, a few con- people there uh, who were still working in certain departments. And I told them what was happening. And within like, you know, 10 hours, they had me on a flight out to Chicago to make sure that I got out there to, uh, you know, to say goodbye to him. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, but I just thought that that was a testament to, you know, the people who were involved in HBO from front of the camera, behind the camera, and just... He just shipped me out there to make sure I got to say goodbye to him, which uh, meant a lot to me. It was hard to get these guys to talk for obvious reasons, Scott. Rich, you taught me more about Malarkey uh, because you, <laughs> I think you showed up, Band of Brothers, knowing more about him than I did. Because I was, I was going to probably be a little lazy. He didn't really want to talk to me on the phone. Uh, and do you remember we were watching, we were watch- I had gone up to you after Frank John Hughes did that thing with his jaw, right? I'm like, well, shit, I want to, I got to do something, right? And I, we had watched, we were sitting there at my place in uh, South Kensington and we're watching this tape of Don Malarkey, who's 80 something years old and does this kind of thing with his mouth because he's old. And I turned to Rich Spate and I'm like, should I? He's like, no, no, that's just because he's old. <laughs> <laughs> so you really got me, you really got me involved uh, in, 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 uh, in getting to know Malarkey. You did develop a relationship, though, didn't you? How did you go about it? Uh, I just had to call, and he would hang up on me all the time. Uh, Richard knows that, because um, he'd just get emotional, and you'd, you'd wait. You'd, you, know, you couldn't text somebody back then. I couldn't text him going, you all right? Uh, can I call you back? Uh, so I would just get limited information from him, because he would always break down. Um, only after we finished... And he saw, you know, I think the original pilot when he was, at, or pilot, at the, the, uh, the opening episode when we were at the Hollywood Bowl, did he really start, because I hung with his family a lot and he saw that I was genuine. I will say this, his family did come up to me when they met me yeah. and they told me the truth. They said, when we found out you were playing our father, we were so pissed because you're not even close to as good looking as he was. <laughs> <laughs> He was, uh, and, and it's absolutely true. I look, we look nothing alike, but, uh, and I think, yeah. So after that first episode that we saw at the Hollywood Bowl, he really started to open up and he'd still cry, but they were like, 
He was okay. The thing is with him is once he felt comfortable crying in front of you, he wouldn't hang up because he couldn't talk about it. He didn't want you hearing him cry, you know, more than anything. So he would sit there in, in, in the hotel room when I, when I met him and his family and cry and talk to me. And I'm like, oh, finally, he's comfortable uh, saying these things. And, he, you know, he, so it was just about him being comfortable. And again, like we've all said, Band of Brothers has allowed all these men to, you know, peek out now and go, oh, the coast is clear. We're allowed to speak of this. Mm. And you'll listen and you'll listen and I'll cry and you'll cry and we'll, whew, and that, that, that in itself is just such a beautiful thing that this has allowed these men to experience. Go on, Woody, our Bobfest coordinator. I spent quite a lot of time in Malarkey in Normandy uh, towards the latter part of his life when he was, you know, health was failing. But when people ask him about the show and the actors, he'd always refer to, yeah, yeah, I got to know Scott and Skip. So he referred to Scott as Scott, the actor, but he always referred to you as Skip because I think for whatever reason, your portrayal, the way his, his brain had processed it, he referred to you as Skip. So that's the only little compliment I can throw your way is he always referred to you as Skip. Um, so yeah, I, I know Scott and Skip. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we used to have, have to have a code in Norm when, when he was here because I was, I was here for a few days filming a, year, a few years ago. We had to have a code amongst us to try and not mention Skip. Because if you mention Skip, Don would just start crying. Yeah. And one day, it was one of the girls on the film crew said, oh, we're just going to skip over there to get a sandwich or something. <laughs> and she used Skip as a you know, verb. And suddenly, yeah. Don's got off again. And every single time Skip came in the conversation, he just would cry. So I, I, I don't know how you managed to get where you got information from Don about, about your character. Because you know, even 15 years after the show, you couldn't say Skip Mark without him crying. You know what I think? I honestly think the reason why it worked for Garnier and Heffron, I spent a lot of time with those guys and Don Malarkey, is because I was Skip, and if I'm Skip, I'm alive. Yeah. So in the conversation that he's having with me with short hair, real creamed up, and in the outfit, or in a bar after, and I, you know, it wasn't like when we go out to bars, we suddenly look like we're in a rap act. We're kind of still dressed in T-shirts, and, you know, we look like modern versions of soldiers, if you will. And so there's something... There was a piece of connective tissue that they could emotionally link together that at once made it hard to have people like me around, people representing the fallen buddies, but also I think was cathartic uh, because they had lost these guys on innocent, like you just talked about, Kala and Muck, gone. They were there, gone. And that was it. There was no conversation about it. Yeah. So if however many years later they see me or they see anybody who played in a character that passed, and they can go to that person and connect with them. It, it's the conversation they never got to have. The amount of ways that this show has continued to touch people for 20 years after it's been made. Um, it's still, it's like the original binge watching series. It defined binge watching. Everybody just couldn't wait to get their hands on the next episode. Um, and everybody remembers it. Everybody rewatches it. It's just insane that it's still so loved, isn't it? Well, it's not that just so loved. It just holds it's just it's so well done that it just holds to even uh, today's standards you look at how it was filmed you know everything was very tactical everything was hands-on it wasn't i mean the big uh, the big green screen uh episodes you know that was happening but everything else was like okay we gotta reset a set you know reset something okay take three or four hours off you know and let's go do something else you know, because they had to rebuild things. It was amazing. And everybody... Remember, it, it, 
everybody here, you know, we had to make sure we did our job or else the scenes would not happen, you know? Um, just Carrington, all the explosion, explosions, you know, when Rick and Welsh are behind that building, all the gunshots, and they're like going back and forth, where the fuck is everybody? You know, it's like, I don't know. Uh, those shots, you know, it's amazing how everybody had to respond at that moment. You know, it is real surreal just looking back at it now. Rick Gomez, did you have any idea of what you got yourself into? I never knew. I, I, I don't think I was too young and too fucking idiotic to understand what it would be. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I think by the time it dawned on me, there was a rap on Sixth Avenue that um, early September, pre nine eleven, uh, one of the buildings on Sixth Avenue. So it was it was all of Sixth Avenue down Thirty Sixth Street, all of Fifth Avenue up Thirty Seventh Street, wrapped this block long Band of Brothers wrapped. They wrapped the entire top of this building, and I went Sunset Boulevard, right? <laughs> that's, that show. that's that show. That's the one. That's it. <laughs> And then, and, then, and then I think at that point I was like, oh, and then, and then it all, then it started to hit me. But I, but I was kind of an idiot. I still am an idiot. So, I mean, you know. And you, Philip, any idea? At the time, you know, I, I was 19 years old and I'd just come off a TV series, um, which was on Sky One called Dream Team. And it was like a football drama, you know, relatively decent budget. Um, I was on that for two years. I was having a lot of fun. Um, <clears throat> then I got the part in Band of Brothers and the first day on set I was there uh, and it was just just a different league you know you kind of know that this is there's a lot of money being put into this and at the time I think it was the, the most expensive TV miniseries ever made um, so it was we knew you know HBO were putting a lot into it and I guess you think you know it, it's going to be you know because Saving Private Ryan had been out and that was a huge hit mm. And so we all had that in the back of our minds. This is the TV series of Saving Private Ryan, that kind of sort of same people who are making it, um, you know, that kind of feeling. But not in a million years did I think that 20 years later, you know, A, we'd all still be in touch because, you know, you work on these, these films and TV jobs and you, you always say, oh, let's stay in touch. You know, we'll be, you know, you become really close to people when you're on set with, it, with everybody. It's like a, a, a family, but you never... Uh, you never sort of do stay in touch, not not to the extent that we have as as uh, as friends and and brothers. We call each other brother, and you know we 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 have a WhatsApp group that we're all on, and you know we we stay in touch as much as we can. But um, it's just mind blowing how how popular it is, and not not just with people who watched it originally when it first came out, but also like the younger generation who are also watching it now, like my my brothers. He, he watches it and you know my, my cousins watch it and they're, they're just they're young young kids and it's just it's just phenomenal what what, what with the length it's gone and and you know and even to this day it's still you know recognized as one of the best tv shows ever made which is mind-blowing absolutely mind-blowing then yeah i mean I, th I think i did realize i think i did realize because you know as i say when you got on set and saw you know the, the the money that was spent on the detail and the size of the thing you know i just knew and you know obviously you know that tom hanks and steven spielberg were involved i mean you know mm. they're, they're they're big hitters in the in the <laughs> industry um so you, you you already think I'm, I'm just lucky to be on this on this um on this project and i remember steven coming up to me on day one of boot camp when I was in the mess hall and he, he put, stuck his hand out and said, you know, hey, I'm, you know, 
I'm, my name's Steven Spielberg, and I was like thinking to myself, like, I don't know who you are. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and I just remember the young boy in me who, you know, grown up watching E.T. and, and, and um, you know, all those great films growing up, Jaws and stuff, and just thinking this is just a dream come true. It's that weird parallel, isn't it, that you were young men thrown together to do something massive, just in a, a different sphere, and the way that you've sort of come out of it gelled together, like the guys that came out of the war from Easy Company were sort of tied to each other for a lot of them for the rest of their lives. There is a parallel there, even though, of course, you, you'd never be so disrespectful as to say it was the same feeling because obviously they were in mortal danger and they were fighting a war. But there is a parallel there between the relationships that you forged. Michael? I, I think that it, it, it's, it's apples and oranges. I think there, are, there will be other things that we do. And, and this is not, I'm not trying to speak for everybody, but I, I think this is the same sort of overall way we all feel about it is that it is its own thing and it, it will never be replaced. Uh, it can be possibly matched emotionally with something that connects with you um, in a different way. But there's very few times where you have to do something that is not only entertaining, but changes other people's lives and also mm -hmm. changes. So I think from that perspective, um, I think it's a one of a kind. Mm. Mark, that bond between you guys hasn't gone away, has it? We all see each other now, and this is 20 years later, and we all hang out now, and we've got WhatsApp groups, and we mess around, you know, and we go out drinking, and, like, if somebody called me up tomorrow, I'd do something if they needed it. It's, it's that kind of thing. So it's um, the most amazing show to be part of. It really is, and these men need to be honoured. I mean, they, thank God this show got made, so these men became immortal, hopefully. Mm. And it's not dependent on how much you feature in the final series, is it, Jason? It was awkward for me. Um, those first few days where, you know, everyone's supposed to play their rank and I had no experience. Like I was just, you know, coming from my apartment in London, get it going through wardrobe and suddenly expected to be a leader of men. I'm just an actor who's been cast in a part. So I had to learn very quickly to, to try to, how to do that, you know, and, and Dale Dye helped me to an extent, but it was a bit of a cheat because I wasn't on boot camp, So I had no one's respect. Yeah. Uh, I think after the speech in the hangar, the overlord speech, I had a bit more respect because they were, oh, he's the guy. Okay. Mm. He's our commander. <laughs> he tells us what to do. But up until that point, it was, it was kind of awkward. And um, it just assumed I was, I don't know, an extra or something. They were all like, fuck you. Who is this guy? You know? Um, so I had to kind of hold my own there. But what's amazing about them as a group is that um and i worked with richard right after like the year afterwards on a, on a series called the agency here in los angeles so i got to be quite close to richard and he's still a friend of mine to this day um and through richard and also michael cudlitz came and did an episode of that mm -hmm. so through richard and and my cudlitz um i got to know those guys and they started to invite me to the reunion because I'd moved out to LA by then. And so I've been going to the reunion every, well, most years over the last uh, 20. And uh, so I've got to know them after the fact. And they're a great group of guys, you know, um, and very welcoming, very open. They weren't at all like they were in those first couple of days. They're a very intimidating group of guys, you know, of course. Um, but turns out they're absolute sweethearts, you know. Mm -hmm. um, really nice guys and, and 
they're good friends and you know they're a group of people i really i really rely on you know great guys to have in your corner yes peter amira I've spoken before about when we finished the show and it was over individually, we all felt this really extraordinary experience to be part of it, to carry these stories. And so I'm carrying a story and somebody else is carrying their part of the story. And as men, we're maybe not so great at talking about that, about how you're feeling. But sure enough, over time, we've just kind of gravitated back into each other's lives. And it's really special and, and powerful. And it's not you don't even need to see each other all the time. It's pretty special, man. I, I look. I know other actors who are very successful. They've done multiple good things. But you say Band of Brothers is like, oh, that's significant. And the fact that we meet every year when we can. I don't know any other job where that happens. This is unique, and uh, it's a testament to, to Michael and Frank, who I think are the core who really keep it going. Um, Frank Sean Hughes is just such a great, great soul but a gifted person and just the you know that takes time and energy to keep track of everybody right and to keep us all informed as to what's going on so i'm very grateful to be part of it i find it utterly uh lovely that frank john hughes who played wild bill garnier has taken on kind of the role that wild bill garnier talking to his son and his granddaughter appeared to have when it came to the actual members of Easy Company and their reunions and keeping them all together and, and being the glue that bound them together. Yeah, it seems to have worked out that way, that he's carrying on the Garnier legacy of being, you know, big-hearted mm-hmm. one who checks in on everyone, right? It's it's very big. Most jobs you do, you have a big time, you connect with people, and then, you know, the, the nature of life just takes you on somewhere else. It's nice to know that we're able to reach out and talk about it and, uh, I listen to outsiders. They think some people think we're crazy. <laughs> like, like, what are you talking about? Wasn't that twenty years ago? How come you guys are still talking about it? But Band of Brothers is lightning in a bottle. It's just something in the air and the magic. I want to finish by going to Richard Spate. Um, how did it feel when it was all over? And try to sum up how significant Band of Brothers has been in your life. And I'm not just talking in career terms. It was weird. Um, I think. Band of Brothers has had such a profound impact. And I'm not saying because it was a success. I'm talking about the, the shooting of it. The auditioning process, which was grueling and emotionally tiring. <laughs> and, and then getting the job and the preamble to, to actually doing the job, which was surprising and stressful because you're talking to grown men who are bursting into tears on the telephone. And then going to do the job where, you know, I was super intimidated. You know, I'm sitting around with a bunch of actors, a lot of whom I don't know, some of whom, you know, I recognize their face or their work and I'm, I'm intimidated by that. Then I'm getting yelled at by military personnel and I'm intimidated by that. And, and you know, it, everything was daunting. It was, you know, I went from doing small things to working on a giant Hank Spielberg project and carrying the weight of real men and their story of war with me the whole way and I just found it I found it so intense I think that's why I got so intense about the job is maybe it's the only way I knew how to handle it you know we laughed hard we goofed hard we cried hard and we worked hard and so I think all those things in in various equal measures at various times and I you know when it was all done 
it was all just surreal. And leaving that job, I, I left that job a different person than I arrived to it. And I guess everybody does that for every job. But this one just seemed to reshape my view of friendships, of what it meant to be an actor, uh, what it meant to be an American, what it meant to be, what patriotism means, and, and what it meant to be a man. And, and the most emotional I got was at the premiere in France, which had been a journey, like we talked about earlier, with the families, with the guys. I mean, I, there wasn't a day that went by that I wasn't in lockstep, attached to the hip with Tim Matthews and Scott Grimes all day long. And I never called him Tim Matthews. It still feels weird to call him Tim Matthews. <laughs> um, Pinky, Muck, and Malarkey, we were in lockstep from boot camp forward for months. Then I also became friends in, because of where we lived with Rick Gomez. Got to know his then-girlfriend, now-wife. My girlfriend, now-wife, was coming out, out a bunch. Jimmy Matteo was there. Uh, Ron Livingston was there. And we were in lockstep, Neil McDonough. And then nine months later, it's like you are petals from the, you, you know, flower blown to the four winds and off you go. And, and it was very, very jarring. It was more jarring to separate than it was to join. Um, and I knew, like, the rap party wasn't necessarily fun because I knew what I was leaving was better than where I was going in terms of the, the, the emotional content of that experience. It doesn't mean I haven't had phenomenal experiences since with work and life and everything else. But I knew I was old enough and wise enough to recognize the rareness of that experience. And it created a, a, a weight to the exit that um, I, I don't think ever left. And I mean that as a good thing. It was, it was a monumental experience. And I remember going to the, the French premiere. We're in France. And I fought to get the family there. All these things were happening. And they had all these events set up for the veterans. And they were all staying in our hotel, and they all gave them these yellow jackets so they could recognize who they were in these giant groups. And they were loading all these guys up on a bus. And these are now old men and their wives, or old men and their buddies, or both. And they line up in the lobby of the hotel, and they're in a line and shuffling their way, the way old men kind of move, out to get on this bus. And the imagery to me was intense because all I could think of was stand up, hook up, shuffle to the door, which was what you did to come out of an airplane, which is what these guys did in their twenties and their teens. And the image of these old men standing up and shuffling to the door to go back to visit the sites where they lost their friends and where they fought and where they landed. I didn't go on that tour. That wasn't for me. That was for the veterans, but I went up to my hotel room and I, cried harder and longer than I've ever cried. And my girlfriend, who's now my wife, was baffled. She's like, what's wrong? And there was nothing wrong. It was just two years. It was two years of trying to do the right thing by people who did something greater than I will ever be asked to do. And trying to make playing pretend seem real so that the stories and sacrifices made by these people and their families resonated beyond the work we were doing when we were shooting it. And the connections I made with those people and those men 
to have Babe Heffron sit in a bar across from you and talk to you like you are Skip Muck. Because as far as Babe Heffron is concerned, you are Skip Muck. You look like Skip Muck. You're dressed like Skip Muck. You got Skip Muck's hair. Everybody around here is calling you Skip. And Babe's had a couple of drinks. And now you're Skip Muck. And the intensity that came with that, it was an honor and a pleasure, but also an intense moment to be the recipient of those stories and that emotion and that loss and him saying, we looked through your body parts, Skip. We couldn't find any piece of you. We couldn't find a piece of you to send home. And it mattered to him to be able to say that at that moment. And it mattered that I could be Skip in that moment at a bar in civilian clothes in London going, I know, but I know, babe, I know you did. And I appreciate it. You know, to have those exchanges, they don't just bounce off you when they, when they call rap and you get on a plane to go home. Those are part of what you become beyond that experience. They are intrinsically woven into the fabric who Richard Spade is and how I parent and how I raise three boys and how I perceive the military today and how I perceive my country and leadership and, and how I reflect on history and everything. We want to thank all of you for taking the time to come on and talk to us 20 years after filming. I think it's been really insightful and I know that you guys have enjoyed catching up again. Some of you haven't seen each other for years and obviously none of this would have happened without the tireless efforts of Woody, um, who has been basically working flat out to get as many of you guys on as possible over the last few weeks. We've laughed and we've joked. Uh, we've had a lot of fun. We've had some serious moments too. And just to emphasise, I think right at the end, I want to show that as much as we enjoy the spectacle as fans and as much fun as you guys had filming it, this was a real story about real men. And we're going to leave you with Jason reading the last note written by Thomas Meehan to his wife a few hours before he was killed on D-Day. June 5th, 1944. Dearest Anne, in a few hours, I'm going to take the best company of men in the world into France. We'll give the bastards hell. Strangely, I'm not particularly scared but in my heart is a terrific longing to hold you in my arms. I love you, sweetheart, forever. Your Tom. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.